Hey everybody, we're live again tonight for the Savage Gentleman Podcast, and we're continuing our series of manly jobs, and we've got one of the manliest ones that I can think of. We've got Chris De- Delaney definitely, here. Definitely one of the manliest jobs that, uh, that we could think of. So Chris Delaney is a wildland firefighter, and if you don't know what that is, well, you're going to find out tonight. So Chris, you've been doing this for a while. You said how many years? Uh, just a couple of years, about 22 years. Okay, so you know. Wow, that's a long time to be out there out there in the thick of it. So we're going over what this job is and, and how manly and badass it is. A wildland fire is a terrifying prospect. We've actually got Let's start some video clip one. To, to just drive that point home for you guys if you haven't seen any of this. All right, so clip number one. Go ahead and play that, Zach. And no, just let it play behind us. That's fine. Chris, if you could narrate no, let's this. let's full screen that. Let's full screen it. So this is terrifying. Oh. We've got a person driving in the midst of this fire. So how does how does one get in a situation like this, Chris? This is, I mean, there's fire everywhere, both sides of the highway, and this person's speeding through. Are you familiar with this this video? Do you know the backstory behind it? I don't know the backstory. I, I would imagine that this is probably, uh, you know, somebody that's been trapped or uh lack of uh, evacuation and the fire came through, burned uh, across the highway, and now they're trying to get out to uh, clean air or to an evacuation center. And, you know, there's probably only one road out and they took that one road. And this is what it looks like after the fires burn Jeez. across the highway. You can hear the engine of this guy is like, he's doing, getting after it. He's doing the, oh crap, oh yeah, crap, oh crap, down. oh crap. Well, and not only do you run the risk of flames and, you know, burning to death, I imagine there's there's some issues with smoke and trying to get oxygen. So, so I got a question for you. Does smoke, because it, and we're building the audience here right now, you guys that are checking in, does smoke affect an engine? I mean, at some point. Oh, that's yeah, absolutely. I you know, that. I, I mean, any any combustion engine needs oxygen to burn, right? So yeah. the more smoke that the motor takes in, the more degraded the power is going to be. And I've seen it where we've had, uh, you know, fire engines basically choke out due to the amount of smoke. No wow. kidding. So what, I mean, what do you do? Just, you got to, you got to wait, you got to wait till water. Yeah. You got to wait, usually change the air filter, uh, particulate matter filter and, uh, you know, hope it fires back up. But, uh, typically you can, uh, you can limp it out, uh, to clean air, uh, before you, you run into a complete stalling when you start seeing and feeling, uh, degradation in the power. Nice. Wow. Nice. And that's got a got a few people tuning in here we've got as always chris savage gentleman yates he he changed his name i think legally i think he legally changed his he name did. to savage gentleman so tattooed good on you good on you for that chris we've got scott buys from oregon out here uh brandon brought yes wildland not woodland we have that corrected so thanks for the <laughs> the heads up um daryl from washington Oh, and Scott said his brother is a, or sorry, his cousin is a is a woodland firefighter, or better known as a wildland. Is that like a wood elf? Yeah. What is it? What exactly? This is Zach's typo. Zach, what exactly is a woodland firefighter? Please. That's a He's great no answer, answer, Zach. No he must answer. be from the east. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't understand words sometimes. So we're actually talking about wildland firefighters, and and this is different from your you know municipal firefighter. The guys that are riding around on fire trucks that we typically envision. You know what? When we Let, say let's, let's watch clip one again, Zach. Let's watch that. I've got a couple questions for Chris here. How wide is the typical road? Uh, you know, each lane you can figure is about probably I think eight feet wide, maybe. So maybe yeah. how is fire feet? jumping that gap? Does that is that common? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you think you look at some of the fuel uh, that's in this, you know, those trees are probably 40, 50 feet tall. And, you know, the flame lengths that you're going to get off there are 40 to, you know, anywhere from 100, really depending on what the weather and what the winds are pushing. You know, what makes me nervous about this video is not only the smoke and the limited visibility, but, you know, seeing all those trees on fire and, oh, and you get yeah. a weakened tree, it falls across the road and this guy's going to come barreling around a corner and there's going to be a tree across the road. So, you know, again, this is a very d- dangerous situation. If, if, have you ever been in a similar situation to this? I have. Uh, you know, typically it's more uh, a little bit more controlled. We know what's on the other side, where we're going. Um, you know, it, it still doesn't negate the, the issues that you have with the smoke or the visibility. So, so you got to tell us, driving through a forest fire like that, how is that? It's pretty cool. Is your, uh, is, you know, are, you, are you making uh, diamonds with your butthole at yeah, that point? I mean, I would much rather be driving across something like that where the fire is on both sides already than uh, be out in front 
having the fire chase me. Yeah. You know, you, at least you know that there's not going to be any more fire come across because it's black on both sides. Oh, um, versus if you're out ahead of it, fire is going to eat you up. Uh, you know, you basically that's going to be that's going to be it if it catches you. Huh. Interesting. So it's actually better to be well, maybe not better, but the the prospect of getting just engulfed in flames is actually lower because it's already across both sides as opposed to if you were in front of it and it just blows yeah. past you. So what it's was crazy. the Mallory Swamp? Do you, do you know what he's talking uh, about there, Chris? So, so Chris. Chris Yates says, I, I work worked the Mallory, Mallory Swamp. Swamp with my volunteer department in 2001. Are you familiar with that one? I'm not. I'm not sure where the Mallory Swamp was. Man, Chris you, Yates, be, give us some details. Some deets. And Luke Robinson, Luke Robinson says, white line to white line is a minimum eight, of 18 feet. feet. And then you've got the shoulders. So you're looking at 20, 24 feet. I mean, it's a pretty good and, gap. And, and so the fire can jump that? I mean, yeah, it can a, spot across depending on the fuel type. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we've got any of the clips from the uh, 1910, the big burn uh, fires. But, you know, fires have been known to spot ahead, uh, basically – throw embers 10 20 miles out ahead of itself no to kidding. start another fire and that's no you know kidding. that's pretty much on the uh very extreme end but sure. uh you know to see a couple hundred yards to a half a mile it's really not that uncommon in a timber component especially subalpine fuel types that are very susceptible to to what we call spotting mm -hmm. so and and actually harry threw this out would a fire like that melt the asphalt it could you know where we see a lot of that is uh uh where either a bridge or there's a culvert and the fire blows underneath the culvert. Oh, so it's getting that it, it'll, heat it'll heat weaken the road. And that's another where you have, gotta worry have you about. ever actually seen bridges collapse because of wildfires? Well, the only reason the bridge would collapse is because the, the wood trusses have burned uh -huh. and then the bridge will fall. But I've seen where, uh, back in, you know, the, this year up in Oregon, uh, some of the old, um, you know, culverts that were put in by the CCC, yeah. they got fire underneath there and the basically the culvert weakened enough and it basically collapsed, collapsed the highway. Because what the Iraqis, the insurgents would do is they'd get burning tires and they'd stick them out on the road. They'd light the tire on fire and, would, and it would loosen up the asphalt. And then they'd, they'd clear off the asphalt, dig down in there, put in bombs and then while the asphalt was still hot put it, up. Put it back over oh, no there kidding. wow you, you couldn't so you drive over it and you wow. think you're on solid um asphalt and then boom you, you drive over a you know a big bomb yeah hmm. that's crazy um so matt bernard says stay in the black referring to uh, i'm assuming where we were talking about driving in that road and being in the midst of the fire staying in the black you're actually safer there than being on the on the outside leading edge is that what he's alluding to? yeah absolutely you know we have a saying uh, one foot in the black meaning uh basically if you can walk in the black there's not a vegetation there to burn basically uh to, to catch you mm -hmm. so you know one of the tactics that we use when we're putting in a hotline uh we'll go direct which means we're as close to the fire's edge as we possibly can and if uh if we need to escape into a safety zone then we basically just step across the fire line into the black where wow. it's already burned so back up a little bit you said putting in a hotline what does that what mean? does that mean yeah. so basically hotlining is uh you're, you're right along the fire's edge you're, you're basically trying to either beat down the fire or put in uh you know a fuel break uh, down to mineral soil uh, right along the fire's edge so as the fire progresses and burns or flanks into the line that you're putting in mm -hmm. there's no fuel left for it to burn so it basically burns itself burn out. out and so you know again that that hot line is is as close as you possibly can versus some other tactics we have which is indirect where we're we're a ways off the fire and we're putting what we call indirect line in and either firing that out or waiting for the fire to come to it but you know typically indirect you have some time to work with it's you know bigger flames we can't get you right can't get that close. So, so hey, yeah. Zach, let's look at clip two because it touches on some of what uh, Chris is talking about here. Yeah, and for those of you guys that are just tuning in, we're going over manly jobs. We're talking about wildland firefighters here. We have one with us, guy that's been doing this for 20-something-plus years. Uh, Chris Delaney is a stud, and uh, he's going to kind of break down what's happening in this video for us. So I think, uh, you know, I got a little of the back history on this. I think it was a uh, U.S. Air Force doing some training here. And, uh, you know, to me, this looks like uh, somewhere in Florida or a needle cast component, uh, some pinion, or uh, not pinion, but a uh, piss fur type woods. But uh, you'll, you'll notice what they're using here is the rake and a very low intensity burn. It's kind of just flanking or backing towards the firefighters. And they're using a hose, but uh, here he, all he's doing is removing the fuel between the fire and where he's trying to stop it down to mineral soil. Um, and, you know, in this 
you, you see them using a rake. Some places in Florida, they use uh, Georgia, they use leaf blowers to actually blow the needle cast or the, or the leaves because that's what is the primary carrier of the fire. Kevin Wiley says tactical gardening. I like that. <laughs> is, that a, is that a term you guys have used or is he making that up? No, that's a new one. I haven't heard that one. but. I like that. Uh, so I've heard fancy. subsidized how, landscaping. <laughs> <laughs> so how physical of a job is uh, fighting a wildland fire? You know, I, I, I think it's uh, the easier, the more fit you are, the easier the job's going to be, obviously. And, you know, we That's have a very politically <clears throat> correct answer. <laughs> we have uh, we have some crews out there on the federal side, you know, hot shots, smoke jumpers that, uh, you know, I think uh, I would put them up against some of the most fit people in the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, their, their lives really truly depend on their physical fitness. And so what, so how much let's work. break it down. So when you go to fight a fire, what's the average weight, you know, of equipment that, that guys and gals are carrying? Absolutely. I just, again, I'll throw it out there. Uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this, you know, some of the hardest core folks that we have are females out on that fire line. And, you know, the typical weight that uh, you're looking at is about 45 pounds for a chainsaw. Um, most hand tools are, you know, five to 10 pounds, Pulaski's, uh, combis, McLeod's, things like that. And, uh, you know, you're carrying at least a gallon, gallon and a half of water at, you know, a couple pounds, uh, of other items, you know, MREs, things like that. So, you know, it's really not uncommon to have a pack that weighs anywhere upwards of 50 to 65 pounds, depending on if you're a swamp or a, a sawyer wow. and then, and then plus how- your tools. How far are you guys typically moving these items and how long are you staying out, you know, in the, in the bush, so to speak? Well, you know, typically in the, in the firefighting, um, production is key, right? You want as much production, you want to put in as much fire line as possible. So we're trying to drive as close as we can, but in many aspects, we're either uh, flying in by helicopters or we're hiking in and, you know, really it's, it's, it's all over the board on how far, you know, I would say that a typical hotshot probably, you know, if they're not hiking, 10 miles a day, then, you know, that's probably, and again, this isn't flat. Gemini, flat so it's yeah. 10 this miles, <laughs> then working like a dog. And I'm not saying one way. I'm saying throughout the day on a 16-hour day, you're looking sure, at probably but 10 I mean, miles. If, if you haven't roughly. done it, if you haven't thrown a backpack on, a, a heavy backpack, because 65 pounds is a lot in terms of backpacking, yeah. and humped many, it 10 miles. So we have our minimum physical fitness test, which is a pack test, 45 pounds over uh, three miles in 45 minutes. So... I mean, that gives you a little bit idea, mm-hmm. and, I'll, and I'll be the first one to admit that our physical fitness test is really not representative of what we do in the field. It's, it's a much more of a lower standard than uh, That's than kind of what the bare takes. minimum, Absolutely. so to speak. So, yeah. so um, has anybody done a, done a study? Like, how many calories? Man, when you're a lot. out there fighting a line. I mean, all of the calories. Yeah. Probably all of them. <laughs> all Those were the best days. The I mean, you could really eat and drink whatever you wanted because you <laughs> yeah. knew you weren't going to be worried free about calories. it. <laughs> Not like now, you know, where you got to count every calorie. But uh, no, it's, uh, you know, you, you really can't, uh, you can't, can't get too much uh, caloric intake. Uh, you're, you're burning more than what you're uh, taking in on a daily basis. Um, and, and there's been a lot of studies done that if you eat, gradually through the day versus three, you know, a breakfast and a lunch and a dinner, then yeah. you're, you're, you're going to do better. You're doing to do better. Huh. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, man, I, I just think about not only are you, do you have to be physically tough, right? To go out there and, and put in that amount of work and, and expend that much energy. You gotta have some serious balls, some cojones to stand in front of the raging burning inferno and be like, well, we're going to put out this fire. So, I mean, we and keep that's going, it's crazy to me. We, and we keep going back to it. Zach, play clip one again, because it's just, Chris, how many times have you seen that in, in your life? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, to me, it seems like this guy's hauling ass trying to get out of wherever he's at, but you know, much more slower. Uh, you know, this is probably uh, more than a couple dozen times in my career of 20 really? plus years. Wow. In, in a situation like man, this. that's and, and, and again, that's a lot. That's way too close. You know, and, and the people that aren't trained, you know, again, what what makes this scary is this guy's going 100 miles an hour, and you know, but but you know, to 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 be on an engine and and works working in a setting like this, this isn't that uncommon for how, a wildland firefighter. How hot would it be in the midst of this? Now, so if you're standing in the middle of that road, what what would the temperature be oh, roughly? Who knows? I mean, I'm not not any kind of a sign i mean i've seen it where it's hot enough to melt the turn signals and the overhead lights on your truck while you're oh shit while Whoa. you're burning out that, 
That's pretty hot. Wow. Yeah, it's, if uh, if it's anyone, cool. we've got some people that have uh, the interwebs at their exit, you know, at their fingertips there. So if you know a typical burn rate, you know, fire temperature of some of these things, type that in there. We'd love to love to see it. And we got a bunch of people tuning in. So hey, everybody, we've got some some YouTube folks that we some new names we haven't seen. So thanks for for joining us. We've got Thomas Holly Hollyby and Every Knot. Every awesome. nut. So what's every nut talking about? Pretty much always feel safer direct attacking, not lining, than working from vehicle on trails. Hotlining. Hotlining. Oh, hot So lining. that goes back to what we were talking about is if you can, you know, have one foot in the black, it's much safer that, you know, if, if you need to get to a, use an escape route or go to your safety zone, it's basically you've already got halfway there. You, all you got to do is step into the black versus if you're putting it in, you know, indirect line. Uh, whether it's on a ridge line or a road, uh, there's a lot of unburned fuel between you and the fire that could be consumed mm-hmm. with you having nowhere to go. Yeah. So it gets around. It, it essentially does that infantry flanking maneuver on you. Yeah. You know, and how, how, how fast, how much ground have you seen these fires cover? Yeah, you know, how, are, are you measuring how, it in feet per minute or? Yeah, how or, fast? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and again, it really goes back to some of the uh, fuel types and the mm-hmm. weather. Um, you know, out here in the west, in the in the western states, Utah, Nevada, out in the deserts, you know, we have cheatgrass and, and light, flashy fuels. I, I've seen it where the fire is moving faster than what you can drive in a vehicle. Really? Uh, 30, 40, 50 miles an hour is not Ooh. uncommon <laughs> with a big downburst Whoa. or, uh, you know, some winds. You know, timber... Uh, Typically, the fire is not moving nearly that fast, but what you're seeing is much of, more of a spread component mm-hmm. from that spotting that we talked about. Is yeah. it's kind of throwing spots out yeah. ahead of it, so you wow. could easily find yourself surrounded pretty Absolutely. quickly in a, yeah. in a scenario like so, that. And, so, is that what happened in California, where all those homes are burning? Where was it embers that just got forward of it? And, yeah, and I think it, you know they're seeing a. a a mirage, you know, a whole of varied conditions, you know, really what's driving that fire. Uh, a lot of those fires down there, whether it's the Thomas fire or other ones is the Santa Ana winds, um, you know, which are common to Southern, mm-hmm. uh, Southern California, yeah. which is just a very, very strong flow of winds that are pretty seasonal, uh, very common to what we see here in, in, you know, the great basin area States, uh, Utah, Idaho, Nevada, when we get, thunderstorms but you know theirs are much more and it's you know it's influenced even more heavily with with the ocean and the offshore stuff interesting interesting so hostile sloth avb uh wants to know tuning in from youtube wants to know what was the worst wildfire that you have seen you participated in i guess been a part of helped put out yeah you know and again i i have a different perspective on things you know uh fire wise uh to me, any, any fire where you lose a firefighter is probably the worst fire okay. we've ever been on. And so, you know, you look at some of those fires, uh, one that I wasn't involved in, it was the year before I started, was uh, South Canyon over in uh, Glenwood Springs, Colorado, but then also the uh, Yarnell fire right outside of, uh, you know, just basically east of Phoenix and uh, Prescott, where we lost 19 firefighters of oh, the wow. Prescott hotshots. So, oh, I remember that. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, the I remember uh, that. largest uh, largest uh, loss of firefighters' lives outside of 9/11. So, That's crazy. You know, That's I crazy. take my hats off to those guys. That wow. Paid yeah, the ultimate I remember sacrifice. that they, the fire got around behind them, right? <laughs> Is that what happened? So they did get you know that that spotting. They kind of got flanked and, and caught. Yep. In the middle of it. So and, so Daryl Velasco. He's not a wildland firefighter, but he has fought fires on board submarines. Ooh. How does, how does a submarine <laughs> catch fire? That doesn't make any sense. Bro, you bro. just open the door and put it out. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I mean. I'll tell you what. I bet my hat's off to submariners. <laughs> that has got to be the worst That's job. terrifying. That it's like there's one place on the sub that you can do that. I've been on a sub like once and where we were doing stuff, and I was like, man, I don't pay you guys enough money for this. And, well, and a fire on board a sub would be absolutely terrifying. And, and speaking of not getting paid enough, you know, for me, what would possess someone to, to do a job like this? Because, you know, you're, you're putting yourself at the mercy of Mother Nature here. You're facing down, you know, one of the most formidable foes that anyone could ever encounter. I mean, you're talking about acres and miles of flame and fire and heat. Rapid I mean, oxidization. Rapid yeah. oxidization. <laughs> What would possess someone to, to do no amount of money in the world seems worth that amount, you know, that 
You know, I think people that get into this business know they're not going to get into it and be a millionaire. Uh, you know, you got to have a love of the outdoors. Mm -hmm. um, I think you fall in love with the camaraderie and the relationships that you build in the fire community. Um, you know, you, you can work next to somebody uh, on a fire and not see them for another five years and run into them on a fire. And it's like you've never missed a step. And, you know, it's I think it's probably a, a lot of what you'd feel um, – in the military yeah, of, yeah, for sure. you know, that camaraderie, having a bigger, uh, a higher sense of purpose, mm -hmm. you know, what we go and out and do, uh, you know, it's not just, it's not just for us, you know, it, a lot of people put their hats out on, hang their uh, asses out on the line. And it's, you know, it's to save people's private land and, and commercial timber and save communities. And, you know, again, no one, I don't think anyone gets in this to be a, to be a hero or, or suck up the publicity, but, you know, I think people get into it because they want to have a higher, a higher purpose mm -hmm. than just, you know, a nine to five job that, uh, you know, may, may, may not be as rewarding. Wow. That's cool. Well, and that's, and that's part of the reason why we're highlighting this occupation, because, you know, for me, it, it, there's, there's something about willingly walking into a situation like that that's so admirable that you have to be a bit of a savage to say, nope, I'm, I'm going to go do this. I don't care what, you know, what the, what the risks are. But at the same time, you kind of have to be a gentleman. You have to be pretty cerebral. I mean, you were saying, you were explaining some of the, the science behind this and what you have to know to execute this job. I mean, you can't just be some knuckle-dragging Neanderthal. Yeah, I mean, the analogy I used is, uh, you know, you're, you're out there on fires where, you know, you, bristle cone pine, you know, trees 2,000 years old. You know, you can't just, you got to know what you're recognizing. What you, you Excuse me, you got to recognize what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. You can't just start up the saw and start cutting down, you know, something that's the oldest living organism on the uh, face of the earth with, you know, a bristle cone pine. But yet you can't, can't worry about when your next shower is coming or you know, when are we going to eat or I got to have a hot meal, you know, yeah. uh, again, it's, it's sleeping in the dirt as well as, uh, you know, talking about what kind of plant and, uh, and, and vegetation that you guys are, are out there protecting. So it's, That's cool. it's kind of the best of both worlds in my mind. So uh, Ali Maloney, it's got a great question there. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Ali we, wants to know, do you have any personal items specifically that you pack with your gear or that you find invaluable when you pack out? Kind of so, that everyday carry. Yeah, what's your what's yeah, your Yeah, I would say number one thing that I do not leave home without is wet rats wipes. Tourniquet. Oh. Is wet wipes. Wet I thought wipes. he was, was going to say wipes. a rat tourniquet. Wet wipes, you know, they're good for uh, taking care of business as well as uh, cleaning your feet and then, uh, you know, in my world uh, you know, you, your feet are your money makers and if uh, you're not taking care of your feet and the next thing that I'd probably take is some moleskin and and uh, even an extra pair of socks, but uh, you we know, just, literally, we're just talking about this on yeah. our pre, on the Ready do, Man. Do you podcast. do the super glue trick for blisters? Uh, I've done a lot of things, whether it's super glue or uh, whether you try to, you know, duct tape or yeah, any of that stuff. Tape. But uh, it's really whatever it takes to kind of keep you going. Mm -hmm. um, Feet are paramount. So, so number one, wet wipes. Uh, number two, foot care. What would be your number three item? Um. I would say just uh, anything that you can take to help break the monotony of doing the same thing day in and day out, whether you're mopping up or cold trailing or punching in line, um, you know, Copenhagen's always a good thing for that. You know, it helps keep you keep you calm. EDC, but, have a but, nice, have a nice yeah, chew with you. You know, a, a good supply of whatever it is that you need. But, uh, you know, I think uh, really it's it's more personal care stuff. Nice. Nice. Uh, Kevin Wiley says, knuckle-dragging Neanderthal equals hook and ladder guys. How do you feel about that? Is that a true statement? That seems, that seems a bit inflammatory, uh, Kevin, to our, to our awesome. brothers in red. We love yeah. inflammatory. Yeah. Uh, Hostile Sloth comes back with, have you been well, nearly attacked by a wild animal during the fire? Yeah. I mean, I imagine when the woods are ablaze, uh, the animals get – get a little freaked out you know the beauty of it is is usually when the when the woods are ablaze the uh the animals are trying to get as far away from it as possible and so but uh you know i've seen bears uh we've been in areas uh up in montana where we've had to have special bear boxes brought in flown in by helicopters so we can put our food in to kind of you know keep the bears away you know if they especially start smelling if you're it. way way on the yeah. leading edge of it yep and again those are maybe us more on a smaller fire things mm. like that but uh you know, you see some of most of the amazing wildlife. Uh, I've seen, you know, lynx. I've seen, uh, you know, skunks, raccoons. I mean, you name it. 
Very cool. Matt Bernard says a whoopee. How do you feel about that? Are you familiar with a whoopee? A whoopee is usually the blanket that I take with me. That's my there fourth number thing. That okay, I, yeah, number four. Right. Yeah. We might have to do another episode where it's, it's the uh, top ten top EDC 10 of tra- a wildland firefighter. Yeah. The, the common EDC amongst I mean, adventurous jobs. I would I would call the the whoopee your sleeping bag, and you know, uh, I t- two two things that I always take with me is my sleeping bag and my and my bivy sack, and it's uh, you know I mean it, you figure you. you you don't get much sleep, and what you do need to get is uh, pretty it. important. Yeah. So having a quality sleeping bag and a, something to keep you dry or keep you warmer than uh, just the sleeping bag is pretty important. Now, you've used a couple terms, and um, some of the viewers may be familiar, but they may not. So you've referred to hot shots and smoke jumpers. And what, what are those two, and, and how do they relate, and how are they different? So, you know, I, I – I, the simulation is, uh, you know, you'll hear people that draw a contrast between the two. In my world, uh, I really think that smoke jumpers and hot shots really do the same job. Okay. All of us do the same job. We all put fires out. It's really the motive, uh, how we get there, the transportation. You know, engine guys drive engines, hot shots drive crew buggies, hell attack folks fly in helicopters, smoke jumpers fly in airplanes, and then jump out and parachute uh, oh, relatively that's a, that's a close. Terrible idea. So, <laughs> you know, again, a uh, little bit different. Fitness standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that uh, smoke jumpers and hot shots are our are our most fit folks. Not not taking anything away from the in the, the the hell attack or the engine folks, but they're typically the ones that are doing it day in and day out on large more large fire support. So, you know, it's kind of the same game ready, right? You're right. All, if you're doing it every day, you're mm-hmm. going to be more fit. Sure. Um, and but but again, yeah, hell attack and engines. I, I'm not taking anything away from those guys. They uh, they have a purpose and a job, and uh, we couldn't do it without them. So Thomas wants to know, what do you think could be done to prevent future fires? And I think, I imagine prevention is is a big part of what you guys do. I think this is, uh, you know, that's a question that uh, Congress is trying to figure out, too. And, uh, you know, I throw that out of there as kind of a joke. But, uh, you know, for 100 years, we've been putting fires out as fast as we possibly can to to protect timbered areas and, um, you know, communities. And I think what we're starting to see is that, we now have a storage of dead fuel on the ground that when these fires do start, trying to get them stopped is is nearly impossible or it's much significantly uh, more challenging. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the forest restoration and, you know, whether you want to talk about timbered, uh, you know, logging or grazing or things like that, but... Uh, I think there's a whole host of things that could be done to help reduce the amount of fire potential. So, so you're saying that in some way government involvement has actually been making things worse. I, I find that hard to believe. That, that really? seems that seems impossible. <laughs> I mean, the government's supposed to fix everything, right? It's like my dad used to tell me: the road to hell was paved with good intentions. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, we've been trying to put all the fires out as fast as they come up. But what you're saying is sometimes these fires need to occur. So that they don't escalate into something far, far worse. Is that? Yeah, I mean, there's some areas that if you look uh, historically or traditionally, you know, they've had a fire regime, uh, you know, they've had a fire interval of five to 10 years. And that meaning that a fire, a low intensity fire burns through there, you know, every five to 10 years to kind of keep all the, all the dead and down, Mm -hmm. keep the forest healthy. And I'm not speaking just a forest, even some of the rangelands. Now, when you start seeing fires, because we've gone in there and put every single one of these fires out, you know, we've got areas that haven't had fire in it for 75 to 100 years. So if you can imagine a lot of dead, a lot of dead fuel. So when a fire does start, the the chances of success going in there and being able to put that thing out is significantly lower. I mean, what's the I mean, is there a solution? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I really don't. Uh, I think that there's a lot of things that we could do. You, you see prescribed fire. You see, uh, you know, folks uh, logging coming back. Um, you see some targeted grazing. You see grazing from cattle in, in more in the in the rangelands. I think all I that, that stuff. I, I mean, know that was one of the things they they did for a long time down at Camp Williams, where uh, 19th goats. Special Forces Group was. Yeah. They had goats that would mm. that would eat all of the. And they use those quite a bit in Southern California. They'll put up temporary fencing, mm-hmm. um, put in these fuel bricks with goats, and, and it, it is successful. Um, you know, what I'm talking more is a holistic landscape-based yeah. reduction. And, and again, I think that uh, we just, we've got to start making small gains wherever we can get them. So Thomas Holliby says, like, avalanche control, um, which 
is where they would intentionally set off small avalanches to help manage the amount so it doesn't become this huge cataclysmic you know, all agencies are doing some level of uh, prescribed fire. It's becoming harder and harder uh, to do some of that stuff. But, uh, you know, that's where you go in and you create a small, smaller, low intensity fire that mm-hmm. is under, that you can control and manage to kind of bring that fire interval back so that you're, you're reducing the amount of dead and down that's on the, on, on the landscape. So where did, I mean, we've got about, you know, 15 minutes, 20, 15 minutes left on the show. Where did the fire service come from? Why did, why do, what happened? So really back in 1910, uh, that was really the, uh, maybe even a little bit before that, a couple of years before that, uh, FDR, uh, came in and, uh, you know, we were getting a lot of these fires out west in, 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 the, in the development of the Forest Service with Gifford Pinchot. And, um, you know, you look at some of the stuff from the 1910s uh, where, you know, he had fires that would go multiple oh, so, states. Yeah, here, think, so we've got, yeah. Some, we've got some pictures. Can we, are we talking over this, Zach? Yeah. Okay, so what are we seeing here, Chris? So these are all communities that, you know, back in the 1900, you know, 1910s that were burned down by these massive, massive wildfires that would rip through um, you know, multiple, multiple forests, multiple states. And so you said there was one called the big burn that stretched across most of the Western half. Yeah. It burned from, uh, you know, Montana into Idaho, um, into, uh, you know, multiple states. It was, you know, again, back and that's in those crazy days, to think about a singular fire. Mi- millions that, of acres. Yeah. Gosh, millions of millions. acres. Yeah. That's even, that, I mean, that's hard to fathom. Yeah. Millions I, of acres. I mean, so by way of comparison, most, a small home, in the United States, right now sits on, on average, about a quarter acre. About a quarter, yeah. That's what about I was a quarter say. acre, small average sized home, about a quarter acre. So imagine millions of acres. Well, just here let's burnt. let's pull up clip number three. This is a time lapse and aerial footage of of a wildfire, and I don't know that this is incredibly expansive. Certainly not to the extent of millions, but this is a rim fire uh, in Yosemite National Park. Back in 2013, and whoa, look man, at the that clouds! Is, that is terrifying. Yeah, so, that's I mean, all smoke. So that's just smoke being yep. illuminated by the fire underneath across the skyline yep. there. And I think Jeff, you know, an easy way to think about it is one football field is an acre. So when oh, we're talking okay. millions, you know, when millions you're talking 100, 100 yards Jeez. by 50 yards, that's a that's an acre. I didn't know that. Huh. Learn something every day. Yeah, How I didn't about know that? that. So, I mean, when you were talking about millions of acres, if you were to fly over that, you would look down and just see scorched earth, you know, probably as far as the eye could see. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're getting some other questions coming in. Robert Tyler, going back to gear, said that the tools that he carried were the Pulaski, the McLeod. Yeah. Um, there can and only shovel. be one Highlander. <laughs> Duncan McLeod. Uh, a shovel. And wants to know, what do you guys carry now? Are chainsaws, if you're within a mile of the engine? I guess he's asking, when does that apply? You know, the tools of the trade really haven't changed much. We're still carrying Pulaski's from uh, one of the original um, Forest Service Rangers that uh, Gifford Pinchot hired back in 1910. Wow. Uh, Ed, Ed Pulaski, a uh, tool is named after him. So, nice. you know, it's still same stuff. Uh, you know, hot shots or hot smoke junkers are parachuting in with, uh, you know, and, you know, chainsaws miles and miles away from vehicles. So they're packing that stuff out or getting flown out. So what are we looking at right here, Chris? So what this looks like to me, again, is uh, I think this was this. The, I don't know if this was a rim this fire. Yosemite rim is fire, it a rim yeah. fire? Okay. Yeah. So if we could go back. Can we go back just a little bit? Oh, maybe 30, uh, 10 seconds. Uh, keep going. I'll tell you. More backer. So what this is showing right there. So this is uh, this is an aircraft. I think what we're looking at is first firsthand uh, video from a, from a he- heavy air tanker. The aircraft that you can see out in the lead there. Oh, I guess that's another air tanker. They're saying that's another C-130. Um, they're coming in to drop retardant. Um, as you can see, this is a pretty big wall of fire that uh, they're trying to put out, and what they're working on is probably a smaller, isolated flank of the fire, um, trying to gain whatever foothold they can to, so when to make a difference. When they're dropping, uh, is it chemicals? Is it water? Is it a combination? What are they actually dumping? What is that retard? What is that retardant? So the retardant is kind of the the red that you're seeing here. It's a it is a chemical based. Uh, it does have water in it. It's you know I don't know all the all the I need the chemical type stuff yeah. right now. 
That's, uh, that's <laughs> give me the Google's molecular floor. structure. Um, but you know, there it's basically a land, uh, uh, fertilizer based type thing that is a it's a fire retarder. So what we're seeing here is there's a lead plane out and follow. Yep. You can see it out to the left here, but we're following a smoke. They have a smoke generator in there. We'll have a what we call a lead plane. Take the lead. It's a much smaller, faster, more nimble aircraft. They're picking the route to lay the lay down the retardant and then they'll hit a smoke generator button that'll leave a column of smoke that the aircraft that's got the retardant will just follow and start and putting the retardant along line. right along that line Interesting. very cool so there's a whole technique to it because they're i mean i guess based off what you're saying you're not just dumping fire anywhere retardant. you're looking for the topography to topography uh fuel type uh you oh, know again yeah. the other thing about retardant is you got to have people on the ground or it's pretty ineffective and so you know, you're trying to now, play what this. Is, what, is, what does that mean? you got to have people on the ground? Or the well, at some point, you know, the retardant will dry out because it's a water-based product, right? Uh -huh. So if it dries out, uh, it's less effective as the fire burns closer and closer to it. If it doesn't have that water base to it, it'll just burn either over it or burn right through the retardant line. So, you know, when we say you got to have people on the uh, on the ground to have it be effective, is at some point you got to follow up to start putting that fire out. Mm. The, re the retardant doesn't do it itself. Right. Gotcha. Um, wow, Robert Robert so Tyler says it's something called Borade. I, I don't know. Is that anything like Gatorade? Sorry, that's a terrible joke. Um, hostile sloth. <laughs> it's for really thirsty hogs. <laughs> really thirsty hogs. Um, hostile sloth wants to know: Have you ever been surrounded by a fire, with there being no escape? I, I'm going to answer that for you and probably say no because you're here, and if there was no escape, then yeah, you know, you get what he's saying. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I haven't ever been in a situation where I've had to deploy my fire shelter, which is another you know piece of equipment that we carry. Uh, kind of a last ditch effort. Um, you know, it's basically a, it's a pop up tent made out of tin foil. Um, it's much higher. You know, it's, <laughs> it's it's much more higher quality than so tin foil. It's space age tin foil. It is space foil. age. Uh, but it, you know, it's a fiberglass type of uh, reflective product that uh, helps reflect the the heat. Um, and it is a, it, you know, it's basically a tent that you crawl into. You just and, hunker down underneath yep. that thing and hope for the best. I and guess, hope for right? the best. Yeah. Wow, and, you wow. know, there's a lot of people that oh my it's, gosh. you know, there's a lot of people that saved its life and there's, there's, you know, quite a few folks that, uh, the fire was just too intense for that to be effective. Wow. So, uh, every knot says that in Australia, we winch out of helis onto remote fires on Saturday, me and two others winched into a lightning fire and pulled it up at one hectare in the hour before last light then winched back out that's Sounds a pretty like harrowing day. story damn yeah <laughs> yep it's so intense. you know they uh they they fight fire i mean they get after it in australia uh you know we send folks over there <laughs> uh re i wouldn't say real regularly i think the last time we've sent folks was a few years ago but uh you know they're just like the united states they get after it you know they're they're protecting their folks and chris thanks for sending that in that's actually fascinating so thank you. Um, <laughs> Guar gum right. is actually a, is a thickener that's used in a lot of our foods too. So, you know. Oh yeah, I'm not going to read his thing. That's that you guys can read that. There's a lot of big words. I'm not even going to try and stumble. But good yeah, good research good there. Appreciate it's great. Yeah, ammonia and sulfate. So we're going to do like later on. We found these <laughs> we found these fireballs. We showed these to Chris, but uh, there are these fireballs that were were actually bringing them in, and there's like a M80 charge in the middle of them. And they blow up and put out the fire. These are small fires. Oh, that's a great. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and Thomas is, Thomas Hollaby comes in again and says, you know, what is a tool that you would like to see developed to help you? It would almost fires? be like an arc light strike with <laughs> fireballs. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Dude, it's cool. It's like so ninja cool. smoke that puts out fires. Wow. Let's make that smoke happen. that puts out smoke. What? Oh, yeah. There you go. Like smoke fighting that fire puts with fire. Smoke. Now you're fighting. Yeah. So where so there is smoke, smoke, there's not always fire. Oh, Mm. Oh, this is taking a terrible turn. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so so we're getting we're getting down to the nitty gritty here and we're talking about wildland firefighting. We've got Chris Delaney here has been been doing this for a couple of decades now and just kind of sharing some stories and talking about honestly one of the manliest jobs I, I can imagine. And you know, there's some people someone asked, you know, is there adequate manpower? And I think that leads us to how would someone get into this if yeah, they wanted you, to do it? Are, are you, you are you guys hiring? hiring? Do they pretty much constantly hire? Yeah, we hire. I mean, uh, 
Yeah, I think we saw a couple of folks. Uh, I, I don't remember who it was, but somebody said that they did it uh, after getting out of the army. The only bad that was part Robert was Tyler. It, was it Robert? Yep. Said the only uh, the the worst part of it was that it was seasonal. And you know, again, what we're starting to see is a fire season that's longer and longer. Uh, when I first started, you'd never see fires like this in California. And so, um, you know, we are hiring. Uh, we hire a huge workforce between uh, on the federal side. Every single year that starts uh, the hiring process starts right now in December and usually concludes by April, May. Um, and those folks are brought on and they typically will work from, you know, April all the way through October or November, December. And, and what are they looking for? They're looking for folks that are interested, hard worker, self-initiative, uh, you know, folks that uh, have a passion for working outdoors and in a, in a higher purpose than just them, themselves, you know, somebody that wants to serve. That's cool. That's and, cool. And what is it? I mean, the bottom line is the bottom line. What does it pay? You know, it, it really, uh, it doesn't pay much. Um, like we said, you're not going to be a millionaire. Uh, the only uh, advantage is, is the amount of hours that they let you work. Um, you know, it starts out, I want to say, uh, you, you know, you can get into it for about nine, ten bucks an hour. So it's really not much. Um, you know, all the way up to uh, making a couple, probably close to $100,000 a year, uh, per, you know, as a full-time guy. It's pretty so, pretty broad range. It is, but it, yeah. there's a lot of years of uh, sure. difference in there. But you know, I would say our average guy, uh, gal that gets on a hotshot crew, in six months they're going to make forty forty five thousand dollars. So it's not bad. But bad. but they're going to be living on the road for you know one hundred and twenty one hundred and thirty days. Wow. Hey wow. Jeff, I may have to uh, talk to this guy a little bit more. I'm just just saying, <laughs> go out and fight some fires. Go fight some fires. <laughs> um, what is the training like? What is what goes into the training? I mean, you can't just walk in and be like, okay, hey, I'm going to go put out some fires. I imagine there's a pretty long process. There is, you know, uh, first year folks are going to go through, uh, you know, what we call rookie school S one thirty one ninety. It's usually about a forty hour. Uh, academy. There's some other, some leadership, some L180 courses that go on with that. And then from there, it's really kind of just on what direction you want to go. But, um, you know, initially just to get qualified and certified to go five fires is about, you can do it in about a week, week and a half. Oh, nice. Hmm. So it's really wow. not that much. Wow. I mean, we're, um, and, we're not, and, we're not building rockets here, right? Right. We're not. right. Well, and, and Chris Yates points out a good perk of the, of the job, all the hardwood smoked venison, venison you can carry. <laughs> As I read that and couldn't help but laugh. That's, that's pretty funny. So let's watch this last clip, Zach, uh, clip number four. All right, so this is some helicopters taking water from swimming pools. Oh, no kidding. This is probably something you'd see very typical in Southern California going on right now with, uh, you know, a lack of water and fire. You know, it seems like a lot of the houses down there have pools and, you know, they're fighting the fire. We're looking for the shortest turnaround times on uh, – between where the water's coming from and where the water's getting dropped. So, so instead of going, you know, X amount of miles to a lake or the ocean, ocean. or wherever the heck you guys are getting it from, is that typically where they pull from the ocean? Uh, down there, yeah. They can definitely we'll, – we'll also have uh, portable tanks that we set up. But, uh, you know, this isn't uncommon in, in an urban area. Now, is there a benefit to freshwater versus saltwater? Does it matter? Do fires care? No, Either fire, fire do, definitely doesn't. Fire matter. just doesn't like water. Period. Yeah, man. I'll tell you what that guy. That's a flying, heck of a pilot. The there. guy flying that tell A star what. right there. I so, mean, so for those of you guys that, that can't see this, uh, this guy just dropped into a pool that's probably, man. I mean, that's a small pool. The first one was an Olympic sized pool. This is like a backyard. Well, and he's look. He's looking at that retaining wall. I mean, yeah. his, there wasn't much clearance yeah, between his blades and the in that wall. <laughs> so, Chris, I got to ask. I mean, this is a silly question, but. How effective? I mean, that looks that looks like a pathetically small amount of water. How how big is that container, and and does it really do any good? You know, so some of our helicopters carry anywhere from a thousand gallons uh, to down to as much as sixty to eighty gallons, and it doesn't sound like much, but uh, it sounds like nothing. I mean, your bathtub is like is what. 10 maximum probably mm -hmm. 10 yeah so so it really depends uh you know some of the smaller helicopters what they can carry but i'll tell you every drop counts and when you're the guy that's out there and and you have nothing at all uh five five gallons feels like a miracle sometimes wow. so interesting you know wow. any kind of help you can get is uh definitely uh uh a good deal down to the last drop Man, that, that's got to be I, okay so uh, there's <laughs> another question i gotta ask how many of these guys crash Oh, 
You know, that, I, I was looking at all these, and these are all, dude, they were coming in hot. These on are that. all non-American aircraft. I mean, these these are different. I mean, these are different tail numbers. You know, uh, I'm sure that's somewhere else. But uh, you know, we have some of the best pilots in the entire world um, here in the United States that fly our fire contracts, and uh, you know, I we we really don't. I mean, I, unfortunately, it's one of those types of things that it's it's a low frequency, but pretty catastrophic when it happens right yeah. and so yeah um you know i'd like to say we don't we don't have we don't experience that many crashes for as much flight time as we put on these wow. things awesome and you said contract so are those guys they're not part of the service they're contract flyers most of all the aircraft uh that the, the the federal side has whether it's the air tankers or uh um the single engine air tankers or the helicopters they're uh, they're all contracts no kidding. Yeah, there's very few government pilots. Wow. There are some, um, but uh, very few. So if you're so use. if you're a like a veteran getting out that was a pilot, then you'd probably find a job doing contract work there. Yeah, there's you know there's companies out there that are always looking for uh, for good pilots, uh, especially now with a lot of the Vietnam folks retiring and um, there's oh, there's yeah. a huge shortage. I mean, I you know, I see things all the time and hear things all the time, whether it's from the commercial airliners. And we do. I mean, we're flying DC-10s and and uh, C-130s and things mm -hmm. like that, all the way down to our, you know, our A-Star B-3 helicopters. So are the pilots contract and the aircraft? Correct. Or yeah. Mix of back and forth. Or we have very few. We have uh, very few agency aircraft. Mostly, uh, all of our uh, reconnaissance planes, our ATGSs, our air attack platforms, or our what we're calling Bravo units. Uh, they're the air attack and the lead plane combined into one. Those are mostly. Uh, uh, contract, um, or I'm sorry, agency pilots, but all of our helicopters, uh, heavy air tankers, those are all contracted aircraft wow. and pilots. Wow. Calvin, Calvin wants to know what about volunteer pilots? And, and I guess probably just volunteer in general. Are you guys seeing, is there, is there a place for that? Are there people that are volunteering to pitch in on these wildfires, whether it be pilots or guys on the ground? Is there room for that? Does that occur? You know, I don't, uh, I would imagine there's probably not a much appetite for volunteer pilots with how restrictive uh, some of the regulations are mm -hmm. on when aircraft can and can't fly uh, um, and, and the training that these folks have to go through. I mean, just to even get your foot in the door to start 1,500 hours, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a lot. Uh, that's I, don't, I wouldn't hours. know I'm not a pilot, but uh, that's more than, you know, what I'd want to have to yeah. get just to just to start out, so... Wow. Interesting, interesting. Very, very cool. And and you guys, you know, keep sending in those questions. We'll we'll have Chris um, relaying back to us to to answer. And and in fact, if there's a there's a place that they could reach you if if, if people want to learn more about it, is there is there somehow to get a hold of you a Facebook or a social media thing? or just come through Ready Man? That's yeah, I would too. say come through Ready okay. Man. I think that would be the best. But uh, you know, for any folks that are out there that are interested in uh, making this a career. Um, you know, there's multiple avenues. Uh, again, uh, I wouldn't just promote the federal side. You know, there, we couldn't do a lot of what we do without the city and county municipality fire departments, the big red trucks. A lot of those departments are a great place to get your foot in the door or, um, you know, a structure department. So, so I've, got a, I've got a question. So how much does it cost year by year? How much does fighting forest fires cost? Like the government? Like, what does it the, cost? The taxpayers? Like the, the, the government. I mean, the government is synonymous with taxpayers, but what does that cost? Well, so I just read an article. Uh, this 2017 was the most expensive year on record. And the Forest Service, uh, I believe, spent just a little over $1.2 billion this year alone with the Department Ooh. of Interior. Spending, and we're not done yet. Spending less, somewhere around $800 million. So... Uh, we're, I mean, we're talking, we're talking big bucks. And where is, I mean, what is most of that money going to just paying aircraft, uh, time, <clears throat> personnel, paying um, hands to yeah, fight fire. Wow. So it's not like a bunch of pork or craziness that's going on. Yeah, no, I mean, we're not eating uh, flame mignons or uh, lobster <laughs> out there. So, so Chris wants to know, this is a great question. What do you think about the California convict program? So, um, I'm assuming so they're taking convicts in California, yeah. actually putting these guys out there, enlisting them to go and, and work these fires. So there's a lot of states in the West uh, that have programs like this. Utah's had a program. Nevada's had a program. Idaho has programs. And, you know, I again, uh, 
when you're a firefighter and you're out there hanging it on the line, you don't care if you're working next to a convict or not. You're, you're all working for a common goal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can't think of a better way to try to rehab, you know, rehabilitate somebody that just needs a second chance in life. And, you know, I've seen where these, um, you know, these kind of career paths open up opportunities and, and turn people around. And so, really, That's cool. um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a great way, uh, for the taxpayer to also get their, their, uh, you know, I guess, uh, their money's worth, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, it gives them an opportunity to, to get some extra dollars and cents. You know, some of these guys are making less than 50 cents a day, uh, working on these convict crews. Um, but, uh, it gives them an opportunity to not be, locked man, I, behind I bars. gotta, I gotta say though, if I was, if I was looking at four walls and a, oh, man, you know, and any bars, day. I'd be like, yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm going to go stomp around through the woods. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'd be praying for forest fires. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that's what I'm saying is, you know, I think a lot of these guys, it turns their lives around. You yeah. Know, it's something they've never experienced. They've never felt that camaraderie. And that's what uh, I was going to say, going back to the brotherhood that you talked yeah. about is is kind of the one of the, the incentives, what kind of keeps you in and, and probably draws you into a line of work like this is being with that group of guys or gals, you know, whoever they may be. Y- yeah. I mean, it's a, uh, it's a feeling that you can't really explain. Um, you know, just knowing that there's almost nothing you wouldn't do for the guy standing next to you and, uh, you know, them kind of reciprocating that same, uh, that same feeling, uh, you're, you may be hiking up a mountain that you, you never ever would have hiked up bef- before this. Um, and you don't know what the results are going to be, but, uh, that y- you know, you're willing to do it because the folks that you do, you believe in are going with you. Yeah. That's nothing, cool. nothing breeds esprit de corps like adversity. Yeah. I mean, I, Whatever that is, whether it's Mother Nature, the enemy, you know, whatever that is. That's man, that's that's powerful. So, you know, that's about all the time we have for today. You know, this was this was really fascinating talking with Chris Delaney. He's been fighting wildland fires for a number of years now, and and really really cool stuff. And this is another one of the series with our manly jobs we're going to keep touching on this as we have people coming in so for you folks viewing if you've got some stuff we've already got a few suggestions so we'll try and make that happen for you but anything that you think is manly you want to see you want to talk about that's what we're here for let us know and uh we'll do our best to bring on those people so chris any any last words no i uh just thanks for the opportunity to come in and talk about something that uh that I love. And, uh, thanks for the folks out there that support firefighters in their community, whether it's, you know, wildland firefighters or folks down, uh, structure fires in the stations. Very cool. All right. Thanks again. And we'll see you guys next time.